Welcome back to Inspired. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We just heard filmmakers Shayla Harris and Stacey Holman share their experience producing and directing the PBS documentary, The Black Church. This is our story. This is our song. It's hosted by Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. Like all human institutions, the Black Church and its leaders had their shortcomings. We were very quick to address racism, but very slow to address sexism and abuse. Today we stand at a crossroads. What will be the future of the Black Church? Where's the African American Church in Black Lives Matter? Where's the African American Church with environmental justice movements? That last voice is Dr. Yolanda Pierce. She's the dean of Howard University's Divinity School. On the day the documentary premiered on public television, her book, In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit, was released. In the early pages, you meet her as a child at her grandmother's table. And while the story is rooted in her personal experience, Pierce was quick to point out to me that if you're looking for a memoir, you might be disappointed. She uses her personal faith story, her own journey, and her relationship to the elders who raised her, the church mothers, as the frame to make an argument that Black liberation theology must include the wisdom of women without formal training, which is where our conversation begins, the origin story of womanist theology back in the 1970s, after Dr. James Cones of Union Theological Seminary publishes Black Theology and Black Power. We see in the 1970s some Black theology being written for the first time, as well as feminist theology. But the Black theology excluded the experiences of women, and the feminist theology excluded the experiences of women of color. So womanist theology was born as a way that Black women were able to take seriously race, class, gender, sexual orientation, all of the realities of their lives and experiences, and create a theology from that. So tell me about the process. What led you to write this book now? So I wanted to interrogate who gets to do theology. That's really the heart of my book. I explain to people it's actually not a memoir. Um, while the stories are drawn from my life, I am not, in fact, trying to tell a comprehensive story of my life. What I want to do, though, is introduce people to my grandmother and to the church mothers who raised me in my faith. And I wanted them to know who these women were, because for me, they embody the best of the Black theology tradition. The greatest theologians I have ever known are these Black women. They were older Black women. They had no formal education. They certainly had nothing that we would call theological training, by which I mean a divinity school or a seminary or a college. And yet I find myself drawn again and again to their wisdom. So I wrote a book so that people can think about how in their own lives, there are these repositories of theological wisdom they had never considered. I feel like the focus on Black women and their role and contributions to a whole set of areas of life has really been a focus over the last year. 
So I think that people have been paying attention to the ways in which Black women have helped to shift the political discourse. We can't talk about this prior election without taking seriously the work of someone like Stacey Mm -hmm. um, Abrams and what happened in Georgia and the fact that more Black women have entered into Congress. But for me, that's actually part of the problem. Black women are taken seriously when they do the work for other people. But they are not taken seriously when they are speaking and writing about their own experiences. We would not know who Stacey Abrams is. She is the daughter of ministers. She herself Mm -hmm. has a womanist theological story. But instead, people really talk about her and describe her as a tool or a means to change politics in Georgia. Black women get to own their own stories that are not connected to what we do for white people. Is that part of why you felt the need to write this book now? Absolutely. I think there were a few things happening, uh, certainly socially and and politically, that led me to write this book now. But it really had to do for me fundamentally with who will tell these stories and can we make sure that these stories are inherited, that they're passed down. We are watching as we are losing a generation of our civil rights leaders. We Mm -hmm. have seen some of the major figures of the civil rights movement, um, certainly including some like John Lewis, pass away within these last couple of years. We will see that entire generation honestly um, die within the next five to 10 years because of their age, Uh, the ones who were fortunate enough to live as long as some of them lived. And so I am very much so concerned with who inherits who passes down the stories of this amazing leadership. And I want to tell that from the perspective of Black women who were doing the leading, Black women who were creating the theology, and hopefully the inheritance of that by others who are open to these stories of freedom and liberation. Mm. You are the dean of Howard Divinity School. You are mm-hmm. the first person in your family, first generation uh, college graduate. And you're yes. just not a first generation college graduate. You're like a first generation superstar. Okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank so, you. You're so kind. <laughs> so I'm struck by the fact that you went to an Ivy League. You have attained the credentials and the respect of an academy to be able to introduce the scholarship, which is saying, hey, academy, hey, people, there are other sources of knowledge not drawn from the academy. For me, those accomplishments are only for this purpose, that I am broadening the scope of how we do the work within my academic academic discipline, which happens to be theology. And so the experiences of these African-American women, my grandmother, and then the church mothers, which is a particular designation um, within the tradition in which I grew up, I want to introduce them as important for how we do the work of theology so that we don't only believe that the people who have PhDs get to do theology, but that in fact, the wisdom of the elders are always on the table for us to expand our knowledge base. I wonder if the dual messaging that's out there, you know, get as much education as you can, be as credentialed so you can compete, has also in some ways led to an internalized diminishing of the wisdom that has been passed on from our mothers. 
I think that's exactly right. These stories, um, the richness of their theology, uh, the faithfulness of their lives provide unmediated a lens through which we can, for those of us who are members of the Christian community and this particular faith community, not only see ourselves, but really begin to see God. And so we have the concept of the Imago Dei, which is made in the image and likeness of God. And so I affirm that all the time, that all of God's children, all of us, all of humanity are made in God's image and likeness and are beloved by God. But there wasn't a space for me growing up and throughout my academic career to see where Black women fit into that. And so the reason I write this book is to give Black women a chance to explore how they were made in the image and the beauty and the likeness of God to tell their stories, to share part of my own stories, because that is the the center of my faith. And I don't need that mediated by a theologian who lived 400 years ago. Mm. I want to allow these women to speak for themselves. You mentioned the church mothers. Tell me who the church mothers are. So within the Holiness Pentecostal tradition, there would be a mother's board. It was a, a group within the church. The church mothers were often older elder women. They may or may not have had children. But what was clear was that they had reached a certain age. And with that certain age was the assumption that there was a wisdom uh, to them, a a dignified regal presence. In my tradition, they often um, dressed all in white every Sunday. And so these church mothers were the real power dealers and the power brokers in the church. Mm. I watched these older Black women wheel and deal in significant power. Mm -hmm. And they were the repository of wisdom, but they were also spiritual workers. They were called to pray. Um, They often led the times of fasting within our church. They prepared the communion elements. And so they had ritualized a religious function. Unfortunately, we've really gotten away from that. And so many churches, even within the Holiness Pentecostal tradition, don't have this anymore. It is something that is dying. And I wanted to tell the story before, in fact, in another generation, we look up and there are no more church mothers or there's no more church mother board. Why is that? One of the forces leading to the demise of the church mother board is um, the glorification. I want to even say the deification of youth in our culture. And so no one wants to be called an elder. No one wants to be a mother. They're happy to be called a deacon or work in some other role or capacity or youth lead a program or lead a youth program 60, 65, 70, 75. Even the women who are fortunate enough to live to that age don't even want to admit it or are very much so. (laughs) This is, there is so much truth being spoken right now. (laughs) Or very much so want to hold on to a youthful um, disposition. And then the second thing in terms of the demise of the church mothers and the mother's board is that many of these smaller congregations are themselves closing and dying. There is um, a certain kind of emphasis on the black mega church mm. and the black mega church even if it doesn't 
itself have thousands of members. It styles itself after the mega church of 15,000 people or 20,000 people. And again, where the culture is very much so on the music and, and the pastor and, and, and all of those things that are wonderful. But, um, somehow the elders in all of our faith communities and not just Christianity, I want to argue the elders in all of our faith community are being overlooked. Mm. Um, they, they are passing away without us taking very seriously their stories. In the book, write about the holiness Pentecostal church experience that you had as a young child, which is very different from other traditions. Pentecostalism itself was this fascinating space that allowed the women, particularly in the African-American tradition, a way to step into that pulpit, to stand up and lead. Yes. The holiness Pentecostal tradition in America has been filled with women leaders, Mm -hmm. um, African-American women, white women, uh, Latina women, um, Asian women. They have found um, it a space for their empowerment. I think the reason for that has to do with the emphasis in those traditions on the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of language within um, Trinitarian Christianity with emphasis on God as Father, um, Jesus as Son. But the Holy Spirit can be rendered in feminine terms. And so I think so many women found the Holy Spirit empowering, found a place where they could call on the comfort of the Holy Spirit to justify their leadership, to Mm. empower them to preach, to teach, to minister. So you have a great number of women leaders within the holiness Pentecostal tradition going so far even to found their own churches and denominations to say, if there is no space for us within these other denominations, because men are excluding us, we will find a place of our own. Mm-hmm. We will create our own table. And so they did. And so you have someone like Mother Ida Mae Robinson, mm-hmm. um, again, a church mother who founded her own denomination and ordained herself and ordained other women uh, to the position of leadership. And that is a denomination that is still with us today. There might be a bit of a disconnect between who's in the pews and and who's behind the pulpit. Absolutely. The the disconnect is actually very startling. Something like 80 to 90% of the membership of Black churches are Black women, but um, it's the reverse for the leadership. That something like 75-80% of the senior pastor, the, the main leader of the congregation are Black men. And so even though many Black women have leadership roles when it comes to the senior pastor position, the senior leadership position, that is often a Black man. So what you would see on a Sunday morning pre-COVID, if you entered almost any African-American church, a small one of a hundred people or a large one of a thousand or 10,000 people is a congregation of mainly women with men on the mic. And so the church mother role was a role that was actually essential. It, It had a name. It indicated that this woman was 
a leader. She was the most senior woman leader within the congregation. So I am happy, yes, that so many African-American women have different positions. They are doing uh, church education. They're, they're doing social outreach. Many of them are leading the bereavement ministries or leading the, the various ways um, that the church outreaches to the community. They are doing justice work um, as an arm of the church. But we still see fundamentally that the senior pastor role is an African-American man. So to tell the story of my grandmother and these church mothers was to help us to think about how Black women have wielded power even when they have not had the position. In the book, you you take on a gra- yes. you know in a chapter you you know I think it's entitled gratitude. You 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 talk about the gratefulness, the the appreciation for having this this institution, and you you mm-hmm. turn to the present and you turn to the future. <laughs> and I want to turn to that for a moment. Give us a little sense of what you want to see and what your criticism is. One of the things that I am most grateful for as a child who grew up in this church is that the church was a learning laboratory for me. And children are encouraged to participate very, very early on in the church, and um, they're given major things to do. This is an institution that I love and of which I am still a part, but I want to offer a loving critique of um, the patriarchy, um, the sexism. Um, I would add to that um, homophobia and all, all of the other isms that, that we could possibly uh, chat about today um, that are deeply embedded in what is a theologically conservative institution. The Black church is liberal in terms of social issues, but it is a deeply conservative theological movement. And so I think you see that within the pages um, of the book that I pay homage to um, all that is lovely and kind that I experience who that that has made me the person that I am today. But I also want to be very, very clear about the fault lines and to say that you can hold that tension together, that you can love something like a faith, like, like your religion, and you can also call it to be a better version of itself. I love the Black church, but it has been guilty of theological malpractice at times. Are you concerned at all about at this time, in this moment, from within the community, resistance, or is that chapter of attempting to quiet the criticisms internally, has that faded? So, no, I'm not at all concerned about the critique that will come to bear on me, um, because I think that my life has been a faithful witness. At a certain point, you know, um, you, you show people the receipts. And so I've worked to make the church better, even as I'm not afraid to critique where it has been wrong and where it has fallen short. Um, I write um, a little bit about leaving a place um, for people of faith, sometimes needing to make a decision. Do, do I leave um, my faith for another faith or do I just leave faith in, in, in general. I'm a person who has chosen to stay. That is 
a hundred percent my choice. Um, and because I've chosen to stay, I am committed to making the Christian faith a more liberatory space for all people who choose it. Um, but I cannot do that if I'm not willing to say what's wrong. Where, where has it been oppressive? Do you consider yourself one of the church grandmothers? I'm not a church grandmother, but one day I hope to be a church mother, which is to say that one day, <laughs> let's say 20 <laughs> years from now, I hope that I can embrace um, aging. I hope that I can embrace the wisdom that comes along with it. I want to one day be the woman dressed in white, sitting on the second or third pew, having um finished my career and, and, and retired, and that now what I see as as the next act in my life is just to love with tenderness and gentleness um, all of the members of a church body. For me, that is the ultimate calling uh, to be a mother, to be a midwife, to be a maternal figure helping to usher in the next generation of faithful witnesses. Dr. Yolanda Pierce is a professor and the dean at Howard University's Divinity School in Washington, D.C. She is the author of In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. That's all for this week's show. A special thanks to our producers, Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special shout out to our founder, Maureen Fiedler and MC Yogi for our theme music. If you missed any portion, the entire episode is available to stream at interfaithradio.org. And hey, while you're there, subscribe to the podcast, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and learn more about the ways you can support Interfaith Voices. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe and stay connected. See you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.